Welcome to Pixel Pizza. Did she say pizza? Your ultimate source for chiptunes, video game talk, and pepperoni. Delivered to you from Los Angeles and into the digital cyberspace of the 2020s. Pizza power! I want a large, thick crust with double cheese, ham, pepperoni. Hey, where's my pizza? Pizza time. Welcome back to the Pixel Pizza Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our most recent track from our chiptune artist of the week, Ben Kyo, and that was called Zero. So now we are moving into our interview portion of the show. I have two very esteemed guests on the show today, so I will be on my best behavior. Uh, that You may know them as the publishers of award-winning games like Night in the Woods and Chicory, A Colorful Tale, as well as the developers of some very big games like Cannabalt. And these are Rebecca and Adam Saltzman, the co-founders of Finji. How are you guys doing? We're good. Yeah, doing great today. <laughs> awesome. Glad to hear it. So I like to start things off by asking the question uh, for each of you, when in your lives did you know you wanted to work in games? You can go first. I'll go first. Uh, I'll do the um, regular uh, regular answer for a, a dude of my age, uh, <laughs> which is uh, I got, um, I think I was, actually, I was fairly interested in computers from an age that I don't remember. I think just because like glowy screen, loud buttons. Mm -hmm. When I was a child, computers were like quite large and 
noisy, um, which was attractive, I'm sure, to any any baby child. Uh, but then, yeah, really went went nutso for Nintendo stuff. Like played Super Mario Bros. when I was probably about six years old, and it I think it just rewired my brain. It was just like, oh, this this is it for me. This is this is what I want to do. But um, I grew up in a very very small town in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, um, it was not clear. How do you get from like living on a farm to, um, making video games for other humans? Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think I was fairly set like from, I mean, I was, I was drawing Super Mario Brothers levels on graph paper by the time I was like seven years old. So I oh, think wow. I my my fate was was fixed uh, for better or worse at, at, at quite a young age. Uh, mine was not. Uh, I didn't want to work in games. Never thought I'd work in games. Didn't know this was like a possibility to work in games. Uh, I met Adam when he was sixteen. I was seventeen, um, and we've been together for a very long time. Um, and he was sort of the first person I ever met that was like, I'm going to work in games someday. I was like, okay, that's cool. We're kids. What does that even mean? <laughs> um, so I always joke around that I fell into games. Um, Adam was an independent developer sort of back when flash games were a really big thing. So like 2007, 2008, 2009-ish. Um, and I was working in PR and marketing. And then I got a job at a software company doing um a lot of different stuff sort of taught myself um, technical writing and then I was a product manager. Um, and then it was right around that time when Adam's flash work was sort of getting too busy and he needed somebody to sort of just manage the finances. And I wanted to get out of the work that I was doing at that time, not because the work wasn't cool. I just didn't enjoy the company that I was at. So I just needed some time to figure out what to do. Um, and that was like in 2008, <laughs> Um, and I have been in games ever since. Um, so it started out very quietly behind the scenes, just managing finances. And then I started managing some of the legal contractual paperwork and the lawyer relationships. Um, and then, um, yeah, when it came down to, uh, we should rebrand into Finji, Adam basically said, if you don't sort of do this publicly alongside me, I don't think we can do it. So will you take over running the company? um publicly and I said yes and it was like two years after that I was like oh my god I'm a game dev now so yeah I had a more meandery route into games um and now I honestly can't imagine doing anything else um I still come from very very far outside of games as far as like my background in playing things what I'm familiar with um but um I do love um, sort of culture and fan culture and mass media culture and am constantly sort of looking at the intersection points between that and games, um, which is really fun considering the type of projects that we're often working on. Absolutely. It's funny. I think actually, Adam, I've, I mean, the, the, the landscape has changed, but I feel like I've had at least two to three guests recently who have developed games on farms or barns or places. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, it's it's much more doable now. The internet uh, was a big deal. Um, I don't know if anybody 
listening or, or watching remembers a time before the internet. Um, but <laughs> We're like, old enough to. <laughs> I got my first, um, uh, I got really in middle school and high school, I used to make a lot of like um, Doom levels or Quake levels. Like I was really into like the modding scene. Um, but to get a, a level editor to make Doom levels, I had to um, get my parents, I had, to, I had to give my parents cash. They wrote a check. Wow. I put a check in an envelope and I mailed it to like Vermont <laughs> and they mailed back floppy disks that had the editor software on it that I then installed on the computer and started making Doom levels that way. So um, it was the the path from farm to game development was definitely, in my experience, was, was substantially more circuitous <laughs> uh, pre-internet um, than post Um post-internet it was like i can just download a doom level without nobody has to mail it to me on a piece of weird plastic <laughs> that, that was that was a yeah that was a big deal yeah uh, wow i had no idea it changed so much <laughs> it did it did uh and it's cool that your guys's skill sets like supplement each other so well that we talk about that a lot like uh our overlap is is just strange when we complement each other really well. Like Adam understands a lot about business, even though he's like, I don't love it at all. And I understand a lot about design now. I didn't mm-hmm. used to, but I do now just because of the number of years that we've sort of um, just been together and working together. I feel like the, if I'm always curious about trying to describe the the difference or the way it's complementary in a way. And I think part of it is, um, like Beck has an enormous amount of design knowledge from just putting up with me for decades. <laughs> acquired a lot of like business knowledge the same way. Um, but uh, I think the amount of patience that we each have for things is quite different. So my patience for legal things and business yes. development is incredibly low. Like if I send one email and I don't get a good answer in like 24 hours, I'm like, I don't know who that is, but they're dead to me. We're never <laughs> working with them again. Which is like, that's not a viable way to keep a studio open, right? Um, uh, but vice versa, like I will just sit and work on the same kind of design problem for three days or three weeks if I have to. Um, and I, I, I think- I don't, would, I would go crazy. Those would be claw marks on the walls, like- <laughs> Um, so I, I think that ends up being a big thing. Like it's, it's really nice to have a ton of overlap in our, in our knowledge. Um, but then to have found ourselves situated where we have different amounts of patience and different amounts of willingness to sit and crack something, um, solve a, solve a weird problem that I feel like is, is pretty potent, um, as a nice thing for any, for any collaboration really. Yeah, our patience is different. I would sit on that email forever. Yeah. Adam just like, you're dead to me. I was like, nah, yeah. man, you're fine. It's just, we just got to wait a little bit. It's going to take a while for this, like, you know, massive ship to Girl, turn God. a little bit. If I, if I send a carefully worded email and I get an unhelpful response, I will, I will burn that place to the ground. Like, <laughs> oh. and, and, and like, that's, that's but I'm yeah. like, hang on. This is what's well, actually going on. Yeah. I'd send back a really frustrated response because it's a really frustrating situation. And it turns out that's not always a good idea yeah. to do. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I'm glad it, I'm glad that it works though. <laughs> I feel very lucky. Yeah, for sure. And it, it sounds like, you know, you guys, since you sort of have knowledge of like each other's sort of, I don't want to say half, but like 
knowledge of uh, the whole process that you don't necessarily like, oh, you stay in one lane and that's it. Mm. Oh, definitely not. Um, both of us need sounding boards, um, not just with each other, but also like outside of us for mentorship on various things, yeah. business things, design things, studio level things. I mean, yeah, we have a pretty, uh, pretty broad collaborative process within the studio mm -hmm. where like there's, um, I mean, we're, and we're still working on it, but trying to root out and get rid of as much like top down my way or the highway kind of stuff in general, mm -hmm. um, just because one, it's a really easy way to get really, really stressed out. Like people say like, well, you know, I don't know the most stuff, so I should be in charge. And it's like, well, that's cool. Um, but now also like, now you have to weigh in on every single problem and if you're wrong, you're the one who's wrong. Um, I don't know. It's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I think we ask we ask a lot of people a lot of questions and try to like make good use of the the all the awful accumulated knowledge that we have from the last like fifteen or twenty years. Um, use that as well as we can. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, really try to not do that in in isolation or um yep yeah yeah I guess I I mean I feel like that's something I've been struggling with with my own creative projects where I'm working on teams is uh knowing the right degree of like when things aren't getting done or you know where no individual person wants to step up where I should take initiative and you know create a plan and have some leadership but also how to make it how clear to everybody that it's not my show and I want input and not feel like I'm taking too much of the reins. I don't know if you guys have any good advice on that. Uh, it's funny that we talk about this a lot. Um, and we've yeah, sort this, of been, this is a normal yeah. thing to struggle with and something really? we still work on a lot. Uh, uh, Adam, whenever is, I feel like this is the big hard problem for social work environments, yeah. period. Uh, whenever I come to Adam with sort of a problem where it's like, it feels like I'm carrying too much of the decision-making or I feel like I'm too involved in something that probably shouldn't be on my plate because I have a lot of other things on my plate. Adam's always like, well, have you asked any questions of the people that you're working with? Have you talked to them and maybe um, worked out an outline with them so they're able to use, you know, the really brilliant and amazing, you know, thoughts and ideas and um, plans that they have for something like have you opened up a space where you're able to collaborate or have you sort of shut that down by not asking questions by not being inquisitive of the people that you work forgetting with forgetting to ask questions yeah. like I think so many usually. people that we mentor uh, in various capacities just miss that step and they end up working off of assumptions mm -hmm. and that's almost always where you get into trouble um, everybody not not in, not any specific you in this case, like everybody, oh, yeah. like <laughs> uh, including us. Um, but that's the the biggest thing is like uh, like if you assume that your um, collaborator feels a certain way about something, or assume they don't want to do this, or assume they do want to do this, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even if it's based on like a previous conversation, if it's if it appears to be in flux, that it looks like people's feelings about things have changed. Just ask them questions find out where people are at at the moment. Um, you can even develop like, that can be uncomfortable for some people initially. Yeah. You can even develop like little shorthands that you use and they can sound a little like corporate-y at first, but like we used to offer up scripts to 
collaborators who are new to this, where it's just like, if you don't know what's going on with something, you don't have to say like, well, I guess we're not doing that anymore, huh? Like just, just say, you can just say, Hey, Hey, what's the status of thing we previously discussed? Hmm. What's the status of it? Uh, and then you can get that information and then formulate how to proceed from there mm-hmm. without having to have assumptions in the mix or, um, and it doesn't mean your assumptions are always wrong either. <laughs> like, it's not like, Oh, everything is always fine every single time, but it means that you can be working off of something pretty accurate. And then you can ask questions. Like, you say, what's the status of this? Oh, uh, for me, that's different from the last time we talked about it. Um, what do you meant? Like, what do you think it is now? Why do we want it to be that way? Um, like any, most decisions in most group work, people should be able to, the people who are like in charge of it and expert about it should be able to put into words like, oh, I had to change this because of this. I had to adjust this because it was making it impossible to do X. Uh, I had to reorganize this because without it, I couldn't do this. Like almost everybody, if you're working with cool people who are smart, they almost always have a reason for the thing that they did. And it's really good to find out what that reason is because otherwise, even in the best case scenarios, you'll come in with something reasonable that you want to see happen or that you want to do too. And uh, you won't know the thing that they ran into you won't know the problem that they encountered. You won't know why they changed things already. And so you want to like pull that information in and, and do the, do the good, beautiful thing together. This also overlaps. Like if um, you're a growing studio, for example, and people are doing things and maybe um, there's this thing that's like just not getting done. So you're checking in and they're like, Oh, I just, I didn't get to that. And if like that happens a few times, like a really good follow-up is like, Hey, do you hate that part? <laughs> like, is is this like, are you the best person to be doing this and not like taking job responsibilities away? But when you're a small team, you're often doing things that are not your direct expertise. And sometimes you find a lot of things that people are doing. That's actually like a whole nother person that should be at the studio with you or working on your project. So we do it as like, like just checking up on people because people will take on tasks, especially in small studio environments. And they probably are not the best person. They don't have the, the expertise. They take, you know, longer than somebody who is actually trained to do that particular task. Um, so it's just, it's part of that. And often it'll be like that stuff that's like, well, it's not on fire. So I'm ignoring it. Right. Um, and you can always like check and be like, well, it's not on fire and we're ignoring it. Are you really the best person that should be doing this? Should be, is some, did somebody else pick up something that should be yours and they should be doing this? Like, should we be moving around some of these responsibilities? Um, and yeah, we do that yeah. often. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of it's just like, I like to start from a place of like, again, if if you've sought out cool, interesting people to work with, anybody has, and um, like something really seems like it's stuck or not working well, there's almost always a, an actual good reason for that. Um, but I think it is easy when you are deep in your own sauce, you are trying to solve your own problems. You're trying to design this thing or get this programming to work or like arrange this kind of like business deal thing. Like all of your effort and energy is going into that. And it might be frustrating that something that you thought was going to be done isn't done. And it, it's takes, it can, for a lot of people, I think it takes a little bit of practice and like a developing a habit of going in with the assumption of like, oh, something went wrong 
And for some reason that didn't get escalated and they didn't reach out for help, but there might be a good reason for that too. Like mm-hmm. assume generally, I, I assume there's a good reason for a thing and yeah. try to figure out what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, because the worst case scenario is there wasn't a good reason for it. And then, but at least, you know, like you didn't make a tricky situation worse in the process. Um, and you were able to uncover in a relatively healthy way, like, oh, something something uh, really weird is going on and now I'll, and I'll deal with that appropriately. Yeah. So it gives you more insight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's, that's the big thing. I think people are treating people with like uh, just a foundational, like, like we have respect for the relationship that we have. It's a working relationship. It also might be a friendship relationship. It might be a lot of different types of relationship, but you're not coming at it as like, I am in charge of you. Uh, You are, mine now person like you're like hey we are working on a thing together and we have goals for that thing and it's talk about being project first so we center things around the project and what are we doing with the project rather than like what are you doing are you have like that's awful so you want to like talk to people like they are people with lives outside of video games the, the complexity so insight is a great word i think um and part of that is because if you are looking to gain insight, you are admitting on some level that you you believe it is possible that you are lacking insight in various areas, right? And so there are some people who cannot do that um, for a variety, variety of reasons, some of which are terrible, some of which are extremely relatable, especially um, admitting that you don't know stuff is puts you in a vulnerable situation. A oh. lot of people work in environments where mm-hmm. that's not really a good idea to do. If you reveal that you are missing some information about something, um, you might work with people who would exploit that. Yeah. Um, and you might not be in that situation now, but you, if every work situation or many work situations you've been in previously have sort of indoctrinated you to the idea that like admitting that you don't know something so that you can make sure that you don't waste a ton of time doing it wrong. If you've been trained that that's bad mm-hmm. and that you should never do that and that that's an unreasonable risk, a personal risk to take on, then, um, you know, like yeah, pe- people can easily find themselves in a scenario where like they don't know how to proceed. They're moving ahead on guesswork um, and and that has its all its own risks. Um, so I think people think it's risky to reveal they don't know stuff, but they don't always acknowledge that doing a bunch of work based on guesses is also like fairly risky. Um, so I usually, um, you know, we, we absolutely try to create an environment where people feel like they can ask questions and um, and if people get busy and we remember to go see if they have any questions, we try to do that. And there's definitely like, it's, it's its own whole thing, mm-hmm. but, um, I feel like that's the thing I run into most is people just like, they just don't want to ask questions, which means they end up missing really important things and they, and they can feel it too. You can almost always like feel it in your guts when you have an, un- a question that you should be asking yeah. because you just don't know how to proceed. And honestly, like, if you if you get comfortable with asking questions that there's almost never really a like a, a genuinely impossible decision to make they do crop up from time to time but the amount of difficult decisions you have when you don't have enough information versus when you do have enough information very very different yeah for sure some uh a good piece of advice i got from a colleague once is that 
you don't know what you don't know. And mm -hmm. you shouldn't be ashamed to admit that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it just, it sucks that so many people are in like these semi-competitive workplaces where right. people push back against that and people get punished for that. And like, we're in, um, professional communities where we'll sometimes mention like, oh yeah, we love when people come in and, and ask questions mm -hmm. when they're in the middle of something. And they're like, oh, I got, you know, I got two promotions denied for doing that at my mm -hmm. last job or whatever. And we just go like, well, that, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the, that's so, the worst thing I've ever heard. Right. Uh, but a lot of that again, boils down to like, we don't know how else to do good work. Mm -hmm. Like if we proceeded on guesswork, we would be doing, we'd, we'd have a really high risk of just doing substandard stuff. And um, we're trying to, you know, maintain a space where a bunch of people can work and be happy and have health insurance and, and all of that. So like, there's not, I feel like there's not a ton of room for us to proceed on guesswork either. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. So I guess getting back to a little bit more of your guys's history. I was wondering at what point did you sort of transition from just developing games to also publishing them? It all sort of happened at the exact same time. So um, in in a far, far long ago history when um, people could make iPhone games affordably, <laughs> uh, I there was sort of like you could make premium games and the free-to-play market was just like barely just emerging. And that was like a really scary race to the bottom um, moment um, in games. And there's been a lot of scary game or moments in games since then. Um, but the free-to-play um, and the race to like sell all your games for 99 cents was like pretty terrifying um, because it's so many copies they have to sell in order to like support even a team of four people. Um so we were like, oh, no, what if at any point, you know, the major marketplaces change their rev share numbers? What if um, we can't sell games at all and all has to be on ad based revenue? What if? And then we were looking sort of at the premium, um, more like console or PC market. And we're like, should we be making bigger games at this point? Like, should we be actually looking into more marketplaces rather than being like hyper specific and like mobile game market or the flash game market sort of smaller games? especially back then, much smaller games. Um, and that's when we started at that point, we actually were making a different game, but that's where Overland came from. Um, it actually started out as a PC and console game and then came back to Apple Arcade um, when Apple Arcade sort of became a thing. Um, and almost at the ex exact same time, um, friends reached out to us about Night in the Woods. Oh. Uh, and I... Night in the Woods sort of kickstarted, and then right away, uh, a dear friend at Sony who was working in their developer relations um, department at that point reached out to the Night in the Woods team and was like, oh my gosh, we would really love this. Um, but the two creators at that point, one lived in the US and the other lived in Canada. Um, and uh, they were like, hey, you published our game over on um, uh, Aquaria, published Aquaria on iOS. Um, would you publish Night in the Woods and develop this relationship with Sony? Because we know you're interested in doing that. You're moving over to sort of PC and console gaming. Um, and Adam was a Kickstarter, like what stretch goal? I think they're, yeah. like, they're yeah. called stretch goal for like the Demon Tower um, for that particular campaign. So we're like, yeah, we'll take that on. Because we already were publishing very small games in the iOS space for teams who just didn't want to manage that. Because every single storefront you manage is... Um, 
as a project on accounting, but also old development, uh, old indie development, everything was on rev shares. So you would be paying rev shares for years. Wow. We already had to do that. So it's just like adding one more yeah, studio, paying people out their, their monthly rev shares. Very much like an incremental thing of, we started out self-publishing. Mm-hmm. So we would make a game and then we would put it out yep. and then we would process any money coming in from that or um, work on porting it to other things. So like we put out Cannibal on web browsers um, and then worked on, you know, making a, a, a paid version of that that would run on iPhones. And uh uh, and then, yeah, re, um, working with some other mobile devs who, you know, might have been, they're based in South Africa. And so the banking stuff is a nightmare mm-hmm. or, or um, yeah, just different, different things, but like really small things. I think Aquaria, part of, part of the reason that went well is because we were already working as game developers. We, it felt like we were able to be extra helpful in publishing because um, publishing often is like, like the game's not all the way done. Like we had to make a new on-screen menu mm-hmm. button for Aquaria because there's no gamepad. And that was originally like a mouse and keyboard and gamepad game. And so if you wanted to get to a menu, there's like no way to do it. There's like no thing. So like I would paint a little like seashell icon or something uh, and uh, get it into the build. And then we could we knew we how to test builds and how to get them um, signed and submitted. And yeah, and there's uh, like, especially, so we, had like little, we had a little technical insight that I think um, there was a lot of it, equipment yeah. needs, especially back then where a lot of indie devs weren't necessarily able to get a hold of or could afford a lot of the equipment, yeah. um, especially early. Yeah, you always needed a, a up-to-date MacBook or something. And so, yeah, we had, it was, it was so much like we just had stuff there was so much stuff that we had to do just to publish our own games and yeah. we would get our own game done and and we'd just be sitting around going like, well, we have the MacBook already and we have the good relationship with the app store editors and we have this thing. And it's like weird to talk about this now, but like early iOS development, like so many devs weren't familiar, like one, they didn't put out Mac versions of their game because nobody really had Macs. It's like early, early Macs becoming really big again. Um, but then also like they didn't work in the ecosystem. So they didn't download Xcode. They've never worked in this. Like that's a tremendous like onboarding ramp up in order to get something over onto um, like in the yeah, iOS the whole, ecosystem. The whole Apple, Apple ecosystem. ecosystem was running off of a kind of a, um, it's a CPU that doesn't even exist anymore. There was like a chipset architecture called PowerPC. And that was the entire Mac environment. Like they weren't even running on Intel chips mm-hmm. yet. Oh, and wow. so it was, I, yeah, anyone who wanted to, especially like for Aquaria specifically, who wanted to sort of port their game across, like you really did have to find somebody who understood the ecosystem or else you had to yeah. like figure that out on your own. And that was not really a viable response. Yeah. So we did this weird, like um, help finish iOS versions of games mm-hmm. and then distribute those games and pay the vast majority of the money coming in back to those creators, those original developers and creators. And then, um, yeah, when when free-to-play started to get big and scary and it wasn't really clear how to continue safely making premium mobile games in the way that we wanted to, that's when we started looking at um kind of increasing game size and and Mm -hmm. moving to Steam and console. And that's when um, we relaunched as Finji during that time. I took over sort of in order to do something like that, there had to be me basically dedicated to 
meeting all the people at the consoles, um, figuring out the Steam ecosystem, um, which I'm still, (laughs) Adam still has been, was mentoring me on that, like even like recently, but like there is, there's just this whole other side of games that like somebody has to sort of hold that information and negotiate those deals and find those partnerships and participate in those shows. Like we'd never even gone to PAX before. Mm. So we had to like, what does a convention look like? What, how do right. we go to a convention? Um, so that was all sort of done from, you know, 2014 to 2017 when Night in the Woods launched. We did do two smaller games, um, Panoramical and Feist before the Night in the Woods launch, both PC um, and Feist had, um, has uh, console versions both on um, PlayStation and Xbox. Um, so there's sort of like smaller early indie titles that were award-winning titles sort of in the indie space that we brought over and then we launched Night in the Woods in 2017. And always alongside our own games. Mm-hmm. So even when yeah, we were Overland showing still in Panoramical, we were always showing Overland and, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I was just thinking the other day about how challenging it must be for iOS or just mobile in general developers to like, if they have to redesign their game for consoles and PC uh, with like the touch controls in mind or vice versa. It's It's, really hard. Yeah. Especially if you've never worked in the space or unfamiliar with it, or there's like a lot of UI design that has to change. I think unless you've made your game nearly interfaceless, which is like Cannibal is that way, Sayonara Wild Hearts is this way mm-hmm. very much. Um, you, I think you just have to accept that the work you're doing is going to be more interesting and is going to feel better on one or the other. Like mm-hmm. I think... Um, I think it's it's not weird for people to think like, well, you know, you've got this computer in your pocket and it's really, really powerful, which is all which is very true. Um, but there are there are just things that feel better on it. Like iPhone games almost always feel better in um, portrait orientation versus landscape orientation. Right. Um, that's a radical departure from our, you know, widescreen TVs or whatever. Um, and there's things about play session. There's things about um haptics and how you process touches versus what are your expectations about what's actually going to happen on the screen. And um, even the the thing that ends up cursing game devs and that is, because then we talked about it because it's kind of boring, but like <laughs> mm-hmm. if you're doing a mouse and keyboard game, you can move your mouse over something and it'll highlight and it knows that you're aiming at it, but that you haven't clicked it yet. And phones don't really have that. If you touch something like you've just touched it. So lots of games are like, well, I guess we do two touches and that's like one touch on a mouse. It's, it's awful. It's all, it's, it's, it's really, it's really hard to know um, what's the right way to do it. Um, You know, sometimes that's just a virtual D pad or a, you know, virtual game pad type of overlay thing. Um, But I think we're always happiest when we do things custom The the night in the woods port to mobile, we ended up going for like essentially um, well, one whole, one half of the screen is a, sw- like, just drag your finger around and whichever way you're kind of dragging it, we'll assume that's sort of like a thumbstick. The other side of the screen, tap anywhere to jump. Um, and then if, but if there's somebody to talk to, just tap on the person you want to talk to. And if you want to open your journal, just tap on your journal in the corner. And when you have a new journal entry, we'll just flash that button. Um, like getting that to be really native and feel like it actually like belonged in there was, um, was a huge amount of work, but like, I feel like you can tell the difference. Mm -hmm. Like it's, um, 
it's definitely cooler and better that way. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a lot about like thinking about how people's brains are going to process stuff and yeah. <laughs> feeling intuitive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think now is probably a good time for us to take our musical break for the episode. Stay right there. We are going to be hearing another track from Ben Kyo, and that is called Pie. So enjoy that, listeners. We'll see you with more talk soon. And yeah. Welcome back to the Pixel Pizza podcast. You just listened to Pi from our chiptune artist of the week, Ben Kyo. And now we are back with Rebecca and Adam Saltzman of Finji. And my next question for you guys is, how many different titles do you typically work with at a time? And how do you manage that? Uh, that's a really good question. I would say... Um, probably at any given point, we have three titles in development. Yeah. So one of ours and two 
otherwise. Often one announced and one unannounced. Usually kind of like one bigger and one slightly littler yeah. in different ways. So if, sort of if like, we can manage it. like a tunic next to a Walmart's warehouse, if we mm. can manage that. Um, yeah. uh, That's the ideal. Uh, we <laughs> That was not the case over the last couple of years where we had... Um, four to five in development at various points. Um, And that was not intentional. Um, Tunic was just the type of game that just, it took a really long time because I mean, if if you've played it, um, you will understand why there's lots of secrets um, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't always um, known exactly, uh, or there was a lot of experimentation in making the game. And also it was a very, very small team. So there's just, that puts some constraints upon how fast you can actually go with things. Um, so that one was sort of always out there. It's like, I don't know when it's going to get done, but it will. Um, and then Chicory ended up being a PS5 launch title. So there was a whole bunch of unknowns as far as like, when you are a launch title, there's a lot of ramp up on figuring out how does this engine work with this new hardware and the QA process for that. So, um, Chicory was done quite a bit earlier, but then we added a bunch of languages to it to hit that PS5 launch title, um, in 2021, um, and then we had Exocolonist, which was, um, Tunic was like, we knew Tunic was going to be done and Exo was sort of like racing into the finish as well. Um, so having two pretty big games in a single year, not usually what we want to do. Yeah. We know that they, like the QA needs for something like that and our like really high bar to, for especially the QA needs, it's just very difficult on a team our size. Um, but behind all of that, we've been working on our new project, which we don't have anything to say about it, but obviously Overland came out, we're a development studio. So we've been working on like internally our own things and then just our long-term support on our other projects. Um, we had yeah. Overland and Night in the Woods um, have native PS5, um, launches this past year, um, just to like get really oh, like yeah. just graphically be- like even more beautiful versions out. Like um, Night in the Woods iOS was in the pandemic, but so usually three, but the pandemic and just this perfect storm of like everything just smashing into these like basically 2020 to 2022. Like we're still like sort of recovering from yeah. that, and now we're like, oh, this is great. We've got our internal project got Revenant Hill, mm. probably, hopefully something else up there as well. And we can breathe again. Um, Cause we're just a yeah. small team. Like, because we make our own stuff, we usually try to take on, we want to have one launch a year, not two, not three in 15 months or 16 months, whatever the hell we did. Yeah. <laughs> 2021, well, 2022. They're, they're big yeah. launches. Like yeah. Those the, are huge games. The One of the reasons that we differentiate or one of the things we mean when we say like, it's nice to work on like publish one big game and one little game by big game. What we mean isn't necessarily like how long it takes the game to play, but the um, really like the size of the launch. Mm -hmm. So um, like Wilmot's warehouse, for example, was uh, uh, only has English language support Mm -hmm. and it initially was available, I think just on steam and switch. I was on PC storefronts and switch. Yeah. 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 PC storefronts and Nintendo switch. So that's like, a couple of platforms and one language and helping with promo materials, but that's like a nicely, that's a, that's, that's one size of launch that we do. And the other size of launch we do is 20 languages and every platform effectively. Yeah. Um, even if they're not actually launching at the same time, we're doing a lot of the development and QA at the same time, because that just is the thing that uh, makes the most sense to do. And uh, they often have really, really big marketing partners. Um, yeah. 
So trying to tune with Xbox, um, get them the trailer when they need yeah. it, be part of this event when that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So those are these kind of different sizes of thing. And I think, I do think we're really, um, we're really good at running one of these massive global things at a time. Um, so we usually try to like, while we're cooking up our next big game, we're doing, we're publishing someone else's big game, but then we we can do one of these like more manageable launches alongside without everybody just like turning into a burnt crisp. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, last couple of years uh, have run at a very different pace. So, well, and we honestly thought Exocolonus was going to sort of be one of those smaller launches, but the more and more we got to understand what that game was, it was just like, oh, now we have to make this big. Like yeah. this game is just too good. Like we're going to put a lot more, um, just a lot more of our resources and bandwidth behind it to make sure that it can find its audience because it is way, way, way too good for people to miss it. Um, yeah. Even though it's, you know, kind of a, at first glance, maybe a weird fit for console, but it feels great on all the consoles we put it on. It's just, um, it's just a really beautiful project, but it is um, like historically just like, like slightly to the side of like an obvious console fit. Mm -hmm. which is similar with overland it was always slightly to the side yeah of a really Actually, good console is a funny game because because the the number of language or the 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 size of the script the amount of writing in that game is so preposterous that right. we, uh, we did have to um ship it only in english um and because of that it did have this we were thinking like oh maybe this is like one of these smaller launches mm -hmm. where it's just a special game that we love but it's only in English. It's probably only going to ship on maybe like one game console initially or something. Um, but yeah, the the more time we spent with it, the more I realized like, oh, this is like a 70 to 80 hour long epic thing that is like resonating with people in a mm -hmm. really intense way. Um, the fact that it's English only maybe is misleading in terms of how we're planning for it and how much support mm -hmm. we want to do and how much support we think the project can sustain and like resonate with. Um and yeah, it turned into a big one. Mm -hmm. So that's a long answer. The no, it's, it's a great answer. <laughs> really uh, a lot more insight into the process, which is what I like to get here. Moving on, what are the key things you look for in a game you want to publish? Uh, so at the base level, um, because we do make games, the game needs to be so interesting to us that we would not work on our game to work on their game, mm -hmm. um, which obviously that's not like a metric that anyone can be like, well, this one will like it is just uh, in a lot of ways, our our personal preference of like this game is so exciting. We have to help it exist um, and we can measurably improve it's odds of finding its audience um, because it has to find its audience. Like we, we cannot, <laughs> we will talk about it forever um, as darn, I wish we'd worked on that one um, because mm -hmm. it needs to find its audience. Um, and sort of like the next step down to that is um, uh, that we have time. <laughs> uh, that's a big one. Yeah. Um, and then it usually needs to have some sort of console life. Um, so we don't generally specialize in mobile games. Um, we generally don't do free to play. We have not historically done live service games. Um, we usually do like pretty high profile 
console games. Yeah, I think that's really, it's also part of that first point of mm -hmm. like, this is a place where we can help is we know how to do a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. We know a lot of the ins and outs. We know who to talk to. We know what to expect from all the QA processes associated with it. Um, we know how to talk to the ecosystems that exist around those platforms. So all the Nintendo fan blogs versus like the uh, different kind of ecosystem you find on Microsoft versus mm -hmm. the, you know, mm -hmm. um, Sony's whole user community, like these things have their own textures. And um, we've just been doing that stuff for long enough that that's one of the places where we often think like, oh, if this game could work on console, then we could be even better helpers for it, essentially, because mm -hmm. we know how to get it in and, and, and integrate it into those things. Yeah. Um, uh, we often think about um, how will this game look and feel sitting next to our other projects. So uh, if you were to walk up to our booth at PAX and maybe we're running um, two stations of our last four launches, Will this game sit well next to Chicory? Will this game sit well next to Tunic? Will this game sit well next to Exocolonist? And not that they are the same, but they look like they should be sitting next to each other. And obviously we have a lot of art styles. We have a lot of gameplay styles. We have a lot of genre representation um, in all of our titles. Um, oftentimes we even have Overland, which is a strategy game sitting next to all of these titles or Wilmot's Warehouse, which if you look at a screenshot of that, you're like, what is this? <laughs> and we stick it right next to Tunic for a reason because it is great. Um, and there's usually a line, or at least historically before it came out, a line next to Tunic booth. We wanted people to look at Wilmot's. I think, so yeah. we do these games feel like they fit together. Um, because if they do, then we're appealing to the audience that is sort of looking for these sort of games. Well, I, I think a big part of that, because it's it's often not like it's they don't they don't fit together because they look similar. Yeah, it's almost like they fit together because they are genuinely striking to look at. I think if you just if you look at Overland, if you look at Tunic, mm -hmm. if you look at Wilmot's Warehouse, if you look at Chicory, they don't look like anybody else's video game for the most oh, part. Yeah. Um, like they don't look, you almost never get stuff that we end up working on confused with another game. Overland used to get confused with Overwatch, but that's a naming thing only, <laughs> nothing to do with art style. Um, like uh, I, um, the way that we decided to show levels in Overland and how we presented that was um, almost, uh, yeah, just other strategy games just don't look like that strategy game. And um like Tunic plays a lot like Bloodborne, but it doesn't look anything like Bloodborne. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a big, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a basic thing, but it's it's definitely something where we have a big, we have a big soft spot for that kind of thing. Um, and I think we have a really big soft spot for, for places mm -hmm. as well. That was the last thing I was going to mention. Yeah. Um, that's usually a weird one. Um, people are like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I was uh, wondering. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so when we look at games, we think about like, there's the characters on the screen and then there's a character that nobody talks about, which is the place the game is set in. So, um, in night in the woods, possum Springs is a place that pushes back on the characters. And it's like a fully realized place that I want to spend time in, yeah. um, down to like Wilmot's warehouse, which is a black screen and you just fill it up with these tiny boxes and icons. That is a place that has um, 
interesting pressures that for me as a player, I would like to go and sort of mess up that well, and it, space. And Wilmot's is a little bit like chicory in that it starts out kind of spare and monochrome mm-hmm. and then you you fill it up the way you want to fill it up. Um, and I think that's a really cool, weird thing to do with a space. But also um, Wilmot's has all of this stuff, like the plain black screen, like you know, the whole level might just be surrounded by a white outline. And then there's like a little garage door at one end and a little garage door at the other end. But there's all these little things in the game that like make that space bigger in your head. And it's not like any other game space. Like no other game is set in like a logistical warehouse just off of a British motorway an hour north of London, very specifically with your weird boss and the guy who's really trying to help you as you start your new job in the warehouse, like there's no other game that just has mm-hmm. um, that specific place in it. Um, and it is a legitimately, it's like a surprisingly interesting place. Like I think if you if you were trying to blindly get somebody really into the idea of Wilmot's warehouse, like you probably wouldn't start by saying, and it takes place in a nondescript warehouse. <laughs> British motorway north of London because <laughs> right. like, people don't know that that is a funny place to set a story necessarily they might not recognize that until you actually get hands on it and you're like oh my I have this crappy boss CJ he's not like a crappy boss but he's like really very corporate um but Juan has my back and the new the new robot they brought in to help me run the warehouse Borky is really well-intentioned and really extremely unhelpful um, and now like, now it it's a place to me in the same way that like Possum Springs is a place because of the pastor and because of where your friends are and because of your mom and because of the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's that thing. And, um, but it's also when we make our own games, um, like Overland doesn't have any set characters. They're all procedurally generated, but what Overland has is a world that is like falling to pieces, like yeah. it is being terraformed, spoiler, by uh, an alien thing that happened like a whole generation ago. And the earth is sort of like those little levels that's like your extra character. Um, and it was really interesting to talk about during the development of that, of why why is, the, why is this happening? Like, how is the earth responding to these particular things? But I mean, it goes even back to Cannibal, like, why is the dude running across the rooftops? Yeah. What's going on in the background? Why are they stomping around? What are the ships? What's the big well, alien ship at 6,000 meters? Like, like, what is this? Playing playing other indie games or playing student games, like playing a lot of things, like especially um, early Flash games or early Unity games, um, people would be like very, very, very gameplay focused, but then they the background would just be like empty. And that always felt like... Um, not like bad design, but like a wasted opportunity. Like there's this can't, like you have this, you have this space behind the action that's happening and you could just, you could just fill that up with stuff that would be in dialogue with what's happening in Mm -hmm. the foreground. Um, And so, yeah, we have, we have just a bad soft spot for games like that. I I will say uh, the two games that I wish we had published, not because we had a chance to, but that just, I feel like are games that epitomize, like, carry all the qualities that mm-hmm. we adore one is celeste and oh, the yeah. other is a short hike oh uh, totally the games that we had nothing to do with whatsoever but that i think 
have mm-hmm. the thing that delights us so much specific places specific characters uh gameplay that feels um kind of um fresh even if it has obvious inspirations they've they've taken it somewhere new all of these things um great soundtracks um all of, just yeah just very good absolutely those are definitely things that strike me about your i guess catalog of work that you've put out is that it feels very curated it feels like part of the same sort of essence and that there's this uh personal touch to it that there's this sense of i don't know if home is the right word homemade but yeah definitely yeah. Uh, that took us a while to identify i think it's funny that you've been able to uh pick that out because I feel like we only started to really recognize this fairly recently Mm -hmm. that um, the idea that a game is personal uh, uh, as opposed to just being like an auteur project that had a director and had a visionary like to me that's that's a little bit different from the idea of a game being personal I think Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's absolutely I think um, our response to games is often um, very much seated in the idea that they're personal. Like Wilmot's Ware- even Wilmot's Warehouse, I think, is a, is a is a very personal game, um, and that's um, I mean that's that's the other thing that people don't talk about a lot. I think in game development and publishing is this stuff takes a really long time, so um, we've ended up feeling like a huge amount of not pressure exactly, but we feel really incentivized to work with cool people um, because you just have to work together for so long. Um, so uh, I think that's that's potentially one of the things that links these kind of personal games back to a particular creator is like we have to we have to sit there well, and work with these people for like it, because we do work with them two for two years, yeah. three years five years eight years wow we embed with these like on their teams like the finji marketing team is your marketing team our community manager helps manage your audience like we build influencer campaigns with you we are constantly working back and forth like you work directly with our qa team and our porting studio you're just on our slack with us you're in our discord hanging out with us um these are people that like will come and visit and like meet our kids. Wow. <laughs> like, they just know it. Like that's just the, the type of relationship that we want to have with the people that we work with um, and that we publish. Like it is like, we are building a, a project. We're building something that's going to be beautiful. And we're going to release it to the world. And we're going to do it in like the best way possible. But like, in addition to the personal story that you devs, you are making and including our own team, we're going to do this like right alongside, like, that we are in a collaborative relationship that we are going to talk to each other. We're going to travel together. We're going to laugh and go out to, we're going to have inside jokes. Like it's mm-hmm. part of working together. Um, and it's also why we probably can only take on one project at a time because we're in, we're building relationships um, around building games. I think it's just one of the things that matters. Makes, it's often it's, I think it's essential. Like the, if you're going to work on a thing for, two years or five years or eight years, whatever it is. Um, the thing, like, it's nice to work with cool people because then you just have f- more fun doing the work, but there's another element of it, which is like, if it's not 
super important to the person who made it, then um, like you you know you're missing something. Like like something is not going to hold up over that long term. Like that project needs to really matter to the person making it. And I think that ends up back defining the games as being fundamentally mm-hmm. personal. Um, like even Wilmot's Warehouse, we had to work together for a, at least a year to get all the different versions two. of that. Yeah, two years to get all the different versions of it done and out there. And it was a, it was a deeply personal project to the art director who um, used to work in warehouses and wow. had this dream of like, what if there was a video game that had some of the things that I genuinely loved about my warehouse job <laughs> at this at lonely warehouse off of a British motorway north of London? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, if that project didn't just delight the people who are working on it, then I don't think we would have yeah. felt like we wanted to work on it either. Um, like, uh, uh, if Chicory didn't delight Greg and Alexis to work on, like if they didn't love making all the weird little characters in it and um, drawing all the funny trees. Honing that and, script over and over yeah. and over. Like, my goodness. Uh, yeah, if Night in the Woods wasn't very personal to to Scott and Bethany, then I think. Yeah, actually, I uh, I think it was like 2018. I was studying at Carnegie Mellon and like 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh, Scott and Bethany held this talk mm. uh, about Night in the Woods. I remember that. Like a donut truck. And yep, they were the talking. Truck. Yeah, they were talking with everybody about like their specific memories of growing up in rural Pennsylvania and everybody yeah. in the crowd was super into it. Yeah. You could tell they're so passionate about oh, it. I forgot about the donut truck. Yeah. Stuff. yeah. <laughs> I think that I was such a cool event. Yeah. yeah. So I think this aspect of games, I think really is win, win, win. Like you, you end up getting to work with in- interesting people. You end up with a game that has a lot more specificity in it than maybe a lot of other games end up with for, for one reason or, or another. But I think there, there is something about like, it has to mean enough to the person making it that they're still emotionally able to work on it for as long as it takes to actually get it all done. Um, and that ends up exerting just a bunch of weird pressure on these projects, I think. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But it sounds like, yeah, you you guys really focus on making each experience very special. Yeah. And giving really good, concise, short answers to reasonable questions. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a, a very good poignant note to wrap up on. And so I have, you know, one more critical question for you guys. Rebecca and Adam, this is the Pixel Pizza podcast. Where is your favorite pizza place? You're going to give the lame answer? <laughs> oh, you can give the lame answer and I will give the funny one. Uh, I was going to say, I, I think it's our house. Oh. We make our own pizzas. Uh, I can't eat most soft cheeses mm. for digestive reasons. Uh, and I don't eat pork by choice. Um, so the number of pizza places that are open to me in, in the world um, is a very small number to begin with. Um, and I love to bake bread and, um, Becca worked at a pizza shop all through high school. That was going to be my, my answer is 
uh, high school pizza, the high school pizza shop that I started working at when I was 15 and left when I was 18. Um, great pizza. It does not exist anymore. It was this, uh, called twofers. I'm not, can't even make this shit up. Twofers pizza in Mexican in Ballerville, Michigan. I'm not kidding. Okay. Um, they had tacos for some reason and we did ribs and I don't know why, but the yeah. pizza there, um, it was the, hilariously, it was the most expensive. There were seven pizza shops in the town that I grew up in, a very small town. There were seven though, when I worked mm. at Tupers and we were the most expensive because we had the highest quality ingredients. Um, so the pizza was awesome. Um, but also uh, the manager, Desi had been there she was older than I was by like four years. So she'd been a manager there for quite a while. Super picky, uh, taught all of us how to make the bread and everything. So it was really good pizza, but mm. it did have a very, very funny name. Um, and I only got in because my brother had gotten a job there. Uh-huh. And then he got the job to my other, to my next brother. And then my next brother got me the job. And then I got my sister job because it was the only way you can get a, a job at two first. Um, so I, yeah, two first pizza and Mexican doesn't exist anymore. It was delicious. Um, and we make a pretty good pie, but that's how I learned how to make such good pizza that we make now. Yeah. I was going to say, it's great that you're (laughs) keeping the two first tradition alive. Yeah. So so I I make dough from scratch at the house and then hand it off to Becca for all the special treatment. Yep. It's delicious. The boys. Okay. So we have two kids real quick. They complain anytime we order pizza from any other place. They're like, Oh, oh, we're having pizza. Oh, I'm so excited. Is this daddy's pizza? Oh, it's not daddy's pizza. No, man. We're just trying to feed you on a Wednesday night. I will say for the, for the one listener or viewer who um, knows about rural Michigan pizza chains, um, that are still open. I would say shout out to Hungry Howie's for <laughs> being the cheapest, being open the latest, and having the wettest crust. Oh, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Butter. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good to know about. <laughs> uh, I think maybe you gave your kids too good taste, but. <laughs> Yeah, our our parent our entire parenting career I think is going to end up being remembered as you did this to you. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's our problem. They yeah. have a rude awakening when they go to college and have to cook yeah. for themselves. Oh yeah. When they realize just how good mom and dad can cook. Absolutely. Uh yeah, so uh thank you guys once again for joining me this has been a really incredible episode. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. It's been a delight. Of course. Uh, so yeah, where can people keep track of you guys and Finji? Oh yeah. So we are on all the social medias, even the ones that haven't exist or that don't exist yet, because mm-hmm. we will set up an account there as soon as they exist. Um, Two more every week for the next. Yeah, four pretty weeks. much. Yeah. So pretty much on everything, it's Finjico, F-I-N-J-I-C-O. Um, so you can find it on um, the app formerly known as Twitter, as well as Blue Sky, probably co-host if that still exists, Threads, Instagram. I don't think we're on co-host yet. Okay, maybe not. TikTok. Oh yeah, TikTok. Um, also, we run a really cool Discord server for our fans. Um, 
which has sort of breakouts between various games, also cooking channels, which is just breads. We also have like um, pictures of your pets channels. Like it's very fun. All the important stuff. All the important stuff that you have on a, a video game publisher and developer fan server. Yeah. Haikus. Oh yeah, That's haikus. For a couple more days. Yeah, haikus is still going on. Um, um, but yeah, we, is it like a monthly often, thing? <laughs> yeah. We often have um, sort of small bespoke events that happen over in our Discord and we just hang out in there. Um, it's not like fans only, like it's the Finji server. And because we run it, we get to keep it um, awesome and safe and wonderful. Um, but yeah, uh, we're also on like the more boring stuff like Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> we're over there too. Uh, we actually posted on there, which was oh. shocking. It was very Gotta keep that mom and dad audience informed. Uh, we ignored it for a long time, but <laughs> we were just talking about recently, like we have these, we should probably do something with them. There's a lot of people over there mm-hmm. um, who do love our games. Um, so, so yeah, we're just, we're kind of everywhere. And if you just look up Finji or Finji Co, you will find us. And we yeah. are active on those or in those places. Yeah. Nothing else is named what we're named. So it's usually pretty easy to find one search away. Mm-hmm. It's, Lucky I was not quite so fortunate with Pixel Pizza. I thought I was being clever, <laughs> but there a cup I learned there's a pizza place in Canada with the same name. Oh. Um, I hope they have a dope arcade. Yeah, that would be awesome. What you need to do is just have a kid, name him Finnegan. Don't ever call him his real name when he's tiny. Call him Finji, and then just steal his nickname when he's still an infant and rename your company that. Yeah. There you go there problem solved awesome then thank you again and thank you listeners for tuning in to this episode of pixel pizza so we are going to wrap up with one more track from our chiptune artist of the week ben kyo and that is called one so enjoy that and we'll see you in a week
Everybody wanna, wanna, wanna ride, ride, ride. Miles, press the little, the little. 